0: Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of the Unauthorized Disclosure Podcast. I'm Kevin Gastola, joined by Rania Kallek, and we're pleased to have with us Richard Medhurst, who's an independent journalist. Thanks for joining us, Richard.
1: Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here and to talk with you guys. Thank you.
0: Yeah, so uh, you know, both of us, Richard, we've been following the uh, Julian Assange extradition trial, and uh, And I wanted to have you on too, because you're, you do uh, such good work on uh, US empire and and covering foreign policy. And and perhaps we'll get into that because certainly there's an intersection with uh, the Assange case in the sense that we've had a lot of this material that's come up about US war crimes and torture that has been entered into evidence uh, to try and help Julian Assange with his case. Um, But I mean, just to begin, uh, you know, and we're, we can have a loose conversation. None of this really has to be formal. We're pretty loose here. But uh, what what led you to go and travel to London to cover this? I know you were talking a little bit about um, who you were able to meet and talk with over the past several days while you've been doing coverage. Uh, yeah. But this, this, you hadn't um, traveled. Uh, I mean, back in February, there was a one-week hearing. But I, I suppose I'm asking what made you go from your own personal set for your YouTube channel to decide, like, I, I want to be there to cover this at the courthouse?
1: Yeah, so, I mean, this is the trial of the century. I don't think that's an understatement, on an overstatement, rather. It's, as a matter of fact, an understatement because it, it has such great ramifications for uh, journalists everywhere, you know, the extraterritorialization of it, the fact that the U.S. is reaching all the way into, you know, onto the other side of the planet and interfering in uh, a UK court and uh, violating uh, European sovereignty, uh, violating international law, violating UK sovereignty, and not to mention Ecuadorian with all the spying in the embassy. But you know, there, there's such grave ramifications and risks here uh, for all journalists. You know, me, myself, I'm a British citizen. And you know, this is happening in my country, essentially. And Julian Assange, once again, I think th- this can't be repeated enough, he's not American. He's not been to America, say for once, I think, and he didn't commit a crime there. So th- this is really—it's it- shocking what's going on. And being a journalist on top of it, you know, I—I I think um, we're all concerned, right? And that's why I always wonder why not enough media are talking about this. Journalists should be the first people up in arms about this. So we are really concerned, and we're—we're—we're we're, uh, we're all implicated in this, and and these consequences are gonna. Uh, you know, They're going to affect all of us. We're the first on the chopping block, essentially. So we all have to be concerned. We all have to be doing our, our duty, essentially, and, and reporting about this and informing people. And uh, one of the big things, one of the big obstacles with this uh, case is how they've been shutting out media, right? So it's been very difficult to get in. Um, even when people had uh, access uh, granted, it was revoked to them at the, at the last minute. Uh, on the very first day of the hearing, you had over 40 NGOs and uh, human rights observers and uh, MEPs. People who had traveled, uh, or people who had remote video access, they were all barred uh, all of a sudden without explanation, without reason. And there's been a real concerted effort here to shut out media on purpose because they they want people to be um, inconvenienced and they want people uh, to have obstacles put in their faces in order for them to attend the hearing and cover the hearing. I mean, even in the in the uh, public gallery where you go up six flights of stairs, the the temperature was freezing cold, and and that lasted for the the most of the, the hearing, right? It's only in the last couple of days where it suddenly got better. And I mean, it, it's such a small thing, but it, it really adds up. I mean, the fact that you can't even bring water with you, you can't even bring a phone. And it, it's so ludicrous because you're sitting in the same room as the press. Like they're literally like two meters from me. Like, you know, Muhammad, he was like, <laughs> I was talking to him in the breaks just down there. And I could see all, all the other people covering it. And it's like, they're allowed to have computers and I'm not, you know, and they're playing around with um Uh, With Craig, for example, the NUJ wouldn't give him his uh, uh, press card. Uh, Mm -hmm. I finally got my press card, weirdly enough, last night. And uh, it's going to take some time in the mail. So I I I don't know. But even then, for example, there's Moritz who's with me uh, in the gallery. He has an IFJ card and he has an NUJ card. But because his is Irish, they wouldn't let him in. It's the same union and they wouldn't let him in. And then they finally did on the last day yesterday and told him, oh, no, actually, we'll let you in. But it's full now. So it's at maximum capacity. This is absurd. So, you know, I I wanted to go, I wanted to travel, but um, I I already knew that you had just five spots in the public gallery and activists were working really hard um, to save those spots for people who were covering the hearing. One of them, for example, being Craig, but he was actually be be able to go on the family list afterwards. And um, I I just assumed that those spots were already taken. and, And then it turns out that actually uh, the activists are more than happy to help me out. And they they were so helpful. I mean, the work that they've been doing, queuing up from like six in the morning to get those spots for journalists like myself. It's really been such an enormous help and service uh, for this entire, entire grassroots movement. And, uh, you know, the reason I wanted to go there is because, like I said, this is grave ramifications for all of us. We're all concerned by this. And it, it's uh, got everything to do with the topics that I that I cover about the empire. I mean, we, we listen to so much. Um, uh, really exhaustive uh, testimony, going extremely in depth and in detail about all these war crimes. I mean, we we almost had al Masri testifying. Unfortunately, yeah. his video link didn't work. So I mean, we're having literal torture victims coming to testify in this hearing. That that's how far-reaching and and um, uh, important it is. And uh, like I said, there's just no coverage from media. I mean, you, you could, I didn't see anyone from mainstream media. I, the the most I saw were. Um, Roughly, you know RT and, and and press TV that's it but like BBC ITV Fox CNN you name it they were they weren't there they, they just don't care and um, unfortunately uh, you can uh, make the same indictment upon a lot of uh, independent journalists as well who, who are some of them even afraid to utter Assange's name so I mean what one more can I say
2: what do you why do you think that is I mean we know why the mainstream media uh, doesn't care about this issue because they are on the side of the government they yeah. hate Julian Assange, right? Like, they even though they all won awards based off of what WikiLeaks uh, mm-hmm. put into the public domain, um, that's not what you're supposed to do. Uh, but why Why do you think that is with, like, the lack of uh, so many independent journalists? I know Kevin gets a little irked by this because, you, you know, people like you two have been doing great coverage. So it's not like we really need so much of it from other people. But I think it's still important to like analyze why, why a case that has such huge ramifications yeah. for journalism is getting so little attention from the adversarial side of, journal, like, of journalism.
1: Well, I, I saw, <laughs> I mean, from what I saw just in the last two weeks, I saw somebody, uh, this was Tim Black, I believe he wouldn't even say Assange. He She was like, Julian. And then, Stop really? It. Yeah, yeah. It's on Twitter. You can. I. I don't. I don't have the link, but it's. It's there. Looks like from last week. <laughs> and then with TYT, you. I think you saw the one with TYT. Yeah. Yeah. With Anna. What is that? And and you know what's really messed up? It's like they, they'll they'll be pressured into doing a video, which they you shouldn't have to pressure them. They should be doing it on their own. But then they'll do one video. Calling out other media for not covering Assange, and then they'll go back to not covering Assange. Yeah. What the hell? Like you're the fucking problem. You're and also not right having not on, jobs.
2: and also not even like reaching out to the people who actually are covering it. Right? Like, have you guys? Has TYT reach out to either of you? Oh, like, no. right? Like, it's like, I, yeah. Like, if you're gonna eventually cover it because you were pressured to, at least have on somebody who's been there. Um, but I wanted, I like, I don't understand. I mean, me and Kevin have. I'd like to get your take on this. Me and Kevin have sort of like gone back and forth about why. This issue is being ignored, not just by the mainstream, but by so many independent outlets yeah. and, and journalists. And, you know, one of our theories has been that they've just been propagandized so much to hate Julian Assange first personality that they can't really see past that.
1: Uh, that's a good point. Uh, actually, uh, Niels Melzer, the um, UN uh, special rapporteur on torture, he said something along those lines. He said that it's much easier to vilify Assange and become acquiescent to his persecution well, once you've essentially brainwashed people, I'm, I'm paraphrasing here, once you've essentially brainwashed them into hating him, you know when you undertake these uh, character assassinations and, and smear campaigns against him, uh, you know removing him from the context of a, of journalism and and uh, tarnishing his reputation as a journalist and then portraying him instead as a hacker or a cyber criminal. Or a rapist, even, yeah. and and just you know, there's a long list of things. Or as Mike Pompeo says, uh, we're calling WikiLeaks a hostile, a non-state hostile intelligence service. So so all of these terms, you know, they become ingrained into uh, the the public uh, psyche, and then um, I, I I think that does play a role. I I also thought to myself the other day that perhaps it's not so much an issue of uh, corruption or or let's say a Villification, uh, vilification, but more of incompetence. I just think they don't know how to cover this. I, I, I don't know. I mean, I'm, again, we're, we're not lawyers here, but we're trying our best. And you would think that these um, independent media outlets, especially something like TYT, right, who call themselves home of progressives, and they have two studios and they have dozens of staff. I mean, we're working with like 1%, not even 1% of their budget, a fraction of their budget. Like I hauled my ass all the way to London to cover this. Like what's their excuse, right? And it's like you said, they don't even reach out to us. They don't even need to spend any money. They can just like literally ask us on for 10 minutes if right. they wanted to, right? And they don't do it. And I, I think it's many factors at play. I think that um, one one of them is perhaps incompetence. Uh, higher up on the list, I would say is, um, uh, you know, this uh, – pressure that they feel essentially that that they themselves will receive flack for covering this because of the character assassinations and smear campaigns against Assange. Uh, but I, again I think this is a moot point. I mean of course somebody who's exposing war crimes is gonna have character assassination undertaken upon him and and, and smear campaigns. That's usually what governments do when you expose their war crimes. <laughs> let me let me what ask you, you let me
2: ask you both something. Um, like how much do you think the Russia gate narrative has played mm. into making the issue of WikiLeaks and Assange because they're all wrapped up in that narrative, right? Like the idea right. that, the whole idea is that WikiLeaks like helped, like worked with the Russians to get Trump oh, elected oh. or something. How much has, do you think that narrative has played into the like desire or the lack of desire to touch this issue? Like it becomes even more of like a taboo, right?
1: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. How much absolutely. That's played a role? I mean, of course, th- this is a bogus point. I think we all know that, but it, it has played uh, a large role in that, and it is—it um, has made the issue more contentious, uh, putting it mildly, and and just uh, made people afraid to touch it. But I mean, we, we we've seen that everything about this. Russia Gate narrative is completely false. I mean, Julian Assange at the time, he already went on TV and said, it's a non-state actor that gave me these files. Okay, so that excludes Russia or any other uh, country you'd like to implicate in there. And we had extensive testimony in this trial, uh, talking about how, you know, uh, the, uh, the leaks just, it, it doesn't add up. I mean, This is ludicrous because you think that as journalists, you know, it's one thing if somebody on the street believes it, like the the average consumer of news or let's say the average citizen. That's one thing. But if you're TYT, for example, or whatever journalist who's calling themselves independent or a progressive, I mean, you're a journalist. It's your job to debunk things and find out if they're true or not and then report on that. So, I mean, even if even if the government was saying that, oh he was implicated in Russiagate, which is not true. It's your job to find out that it's not true and then report on that, you know? So I think this is beyond journalistic malpractice. It's just, uh, it's incorrigible. It really is.
0: I mean, I, what I'd say to that is it's one thing that I've discovered by looking at the indictment is that one of the charges against Julian Assange is actually charged by the government like he was involved in hacking or election interference during 2016. Uh, there's this, uh, the, the, the charge that we understand as the password cracking charge yeah. is actually a, uh, a charge under the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act and then a conspiracy to defraud the U.S. government yeah, and, right. and, and it's changed. And I actually looked and if you put in the U.S. code, this is really kind of this is very into the legal weeds, but if you look up the code and you look at those numbers together, I was able to find that that's how they charged the 13 alleged Russian nationals that tried to hack into the 2016 election as part of the Mueller investigation. Um, And we know that fell apart. They decided to abandon that prosecution, but they're making this claim that Julian Assange conspired to defraud the US government in almost the same way that they would allege that Russian intelligence people or russian nationals whoever they're throwing these charges at the same way that they went after them and uh, and then obviously like i just said that case fell apart um but i do think you know um this is this is part of the the, the way that the democratic party truly understands uh the the case i think that there's a lot of evidence for this theory that uh, they aren't engaging in this prosecution, and in fact might be supportive of it because of Russia Gate. Uh, but I want to yes. ask, but I want to ask you, um, Richard, uh, about uh, since you were there, um, I wanna, I wondered how you would feel about the uh, BBC Home Affairs correspondent who <laughs> who had to say about this trial that uh, uh, he had been in a few hearings. I don't know what that means. I mean, you mean you were there several days. I had been in a few hearings, and it is slightly repetitive at the moment. It will return as a news story. And this is what he said when he was asked why BBC wasn't doing more coverage. And,
1: I this mean, is...
0: let me ask you, was were, were, were you finding it to be uh, the same thing every single day? I mean,
1: that statement in of itself is so embarrassing. I mean, c- could you imagine being so bland and, and, and lame that to you the trial of the century is repetitive? I mean, what, what more do you want? Uh, what are you looking for exactly? Uh, this trial has been nothing but, but extraordinary, I mean, to say the least, and um, not, not in a positive way, but just in a shocking manner. There's more than enough to report on here. Um, and I really think that this, uh, this this speaks to the level of, uh, you know, uh, journalistic integrity and, and, um, and reporting that they have at the BBC. Uh, let's not forget that it's state media, right? <laughs> I don't think they have a sticker yet or a label on <laughs> uh, no, anyway. they're a
2: good kind. They're a good kind of state. <laughs>
1: right, yes. Uh, but, yeah, I, I mean, this is absurd. You know, even if you want to play devil's advocate and, and find something that's been repetitive or quote-unquote repetitive, the only thing that's been repetitive is the message coming from all of these extra witnesses that the detention of Julian Assange is extremely inhumane, whether it's been uh, the arbitrary detention in, in, in the Ecuadorian embassy essentially being forced to uh, be holed up there for seven years, or whether it's in, in Belmarsh prison when, I mean, he was in, being held on, a super, on an old indictment, no less, <laughs> just mm-hmm. until the, the hearing started. It's absurd. I mean they, they've thrown out these most basic legal uh, um, principles out the window and and moreover what he faces in the u s so we've had we' have doctors uh, talking about this you know the the top neuros um, neuropsychiatrists and uh, forensic psychiatrists in the country coming in and talking about this and also doctors from the u s saying that you know if he's taken to the United States and placed under these Sams these special administrative measures they will most definitely have a detrimental effect on his mental and physical health so we, we have all this uh, this expert medical testimony, we have seasoned journalists, we have people like Daniel Ellsberg, we have human rights lawyers, we have uh, constitutional litigators, you know, we got Carrie Shankman, we had Trevor Tim, we have all of these, the best of the best in their respective fields, all of them coming in and saying this entire trial is wrong. The charges are baseless. They're, they're unethical. They're, they're immoral. They don't apply to this case even. Um, this will set a dangerous legal precedent to indict and convict a publisher or a journalist for um, under the Espionage Act and the grave ramifications this will have on freedom of speech and the freedom of press. So that's the only repetitive thing that we've had is that the vast majority of the expert witnesses are all in agreement, and there are so many witnesses who are in agreement that we couldn't even get through them all. That the judge had to rush through the hearing and force them to become written statements instead of actually having people to come in and testify. So uh, I think this is really embarrassing and and shameful to hear these kinds of things from any journalist and no less someone from the BBC you know where they they they're um claiming that they're some kind of elitist establishment and and uh, above the the fray no this is this is embarrassing this is unacceptable and uh, you know I, I don't believe that he's even been to a few hearings whatever that means I don't <laughs> believe that
0: <laughs> well and then on this uh, so so let me ask you uh, what do you feel was the defense's or Assange's legal team's most effective witness. or When you were following this over the last 18 days, it, 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 in total, we had about 18 days of testimony, yeah. including those those statements, which, which by the way, without taking a whole lot of time, I wanna say that it is truly insulting to the principles of open justice, the way that Judge Vanessa Barretzer handled those statements. When yeah. I covered Chelsea Manning's trial in 2013, The military judge required everything that was entered into evidence to be read in full into the record so all press and public in attendance could hear and understand every single word that was being read from it. But the defense attorneys were told that they were only allowed to read parts of it to summarize because she's got the material in front. I've already got it. She says, I've already got it. You don't need to read it. I already have it. So ridiculous. Uh, yeah. but, but, uh, but my question to you is, you know, everyone believes and even I take this approach that Julian Assange is likely to lose this and will have to appeal. But if anything was going to help Julian Assange avoid extradition, what do you feel was their strongest, was the strongest part of this case that was put on?
1: So ju- just to um, comment quickly on the, uh, the statements and the fact they've been summarized. I mean, you, you're talking about the court martial in the U.S. Now, correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe in the U.S. you can also access um, the uh, court transcripts for free, and they're open to the public. Whereas in the U.K., you know, uh, I don't know. Sure but don't...
2: Given by that side that Kevin just gave us, I don't know if that's accurate. Is that not accurate? Well, Kevin?
1: so this, so this is the backstory well, here: since it's a court martial, and it's classified information. Perhaps not with that exactly, but <laughs> I mean, in the U.K., you have to pay like a thousand pounds a day for uh, someone to come and transcribe oh. uh, what's going on. And that's why the judge yesterday, she didn't rule on whether she's going to force the uh, defense and prosecution to publish the transcripts, which is absurd because this is a public hearing in a public court. You would think that any member of the public should be able to go and see what's happening there, never mind the fact that it's been summarized on top of it. So, uh, I mean, that's just shocking.
2: Can I I, I ask you guys both a question as somebody who obviously I haven't been sitting in and watching. I've just been relying on um, reporting from people like you. Uh, cause I'm a bad journalist, I guess, but I'm also not covering this case. Um, but like, for those who aren't, which is most people, most people are not watching are not watching this play out. They're not watching the witnesses. Why don't like, can I get like a rundown of hi- like highlights, like between the two of you, like what, when you're watching this, like we're not watching it. What's happening that people should know about in these, uh, testimonies from both sides.
0: Yeah, Well, I think that's where I was going because I wanted to start with what I thought was, you know, if you hadn't had an opportunity to follow any of this trial and you believed it was incredibly bleak, not that we need to be optimistic, but I do want to give credit to what the defense was trying to do. It had a really difficult job to do in defending Julian Assange. And I think that they came up with some really good people to try and undermine the U.S. government.
1: So, I mean, j- j- so just to answer your questions both at the same yeah. time, I-, I-, I think the most striking testimonies um, in-, in overall. So, for example, Shankman, Carrie Shankman, I think he did an excellent job. Uh, I think uh, oftentimes when you had someone who's also a lawyer, they know how to navigate through the BS coming from another lawyer. Yeah. So it- it's-, it's a lot less nerve wracking, I would say, or I could imagine rather. Uh, for them and they also know how how um, how the proceedings work more or less and they know what to avoid etc not to mention that they are seasoned veterans in their respective fields right when it, whether it's in journalism or uh, human rights um, so uh, they 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 knew what to do and Trevor Tim was also amazing and i think um, in, came, in in terms of what was uh, explosive uh, testimony and what is also simultaneously uh, hopefully going to aid the defenses case the UC Global stuff, I would say, is was, was extremely, yeah. Yeah. Uh, I mean, any judge with a shred of integrity would throw this out immediately based on this, because, you know, we're hearing from uh, two anonymous witnesses, their, their, their identities have become uh, anonymous at the request of the Spanish court, which is also investigating David Morales, the head of UC Global, simultaneously. So their testimonies, they talked about how there was a concerted effort by Morales to seek out and, and, and get this contract from the US. And he was paid tons of money, right? 200,000 euros a month, I recall, I think that was somewhere around his yeah. salary to to go and, and personally transport these recordings every 15 days to the US. And he, he openly admitted on telegram with these messages that he was working with, you know, the, the agency of the stars and stripes and using these Trump stickers. And yeah, he's working for, for the US intelligence, whether that's CIA or not, I don't know. But you can probably imagine it is. Uh, it, in any case, it was definitely, definitely U.S. intelligence. And, you know, the fact that the U.S. intelligence is also blocking the Spanish investigation speaks volumes. So I think, I think the fact that they spied on Assange, uh, I mean, it's not just about violating his privacy. It's violating fundamental legal principles of, of having a court proceeding. I mean, whether it's about a parking ticket or an extradition, you, you can't use evidence, tainted evidence and, and spy on someone and, uh, and then submit that in court, right? I mean, this is a, a violation of, uh, I mean, a plethora of, of laws. It's, it's a violation of right to due process under the US constitution. It's a violation of common law in the UK, right? Legal privilege. It's a violation of uh, several articles under the, human, uh, the European Convention on Human Rights. So uh, Article six, right to a fair trial. Uh, you look at Article eight also when it comes to terms of uh, legal privilege. So there's no way you can look at this and not find extraordinary Violations of, of very basic fundamental principles of, of uh, law in, in every jurisdiction, and I really hope that that she will uh, judge Barretta will find her, the light and and see that she must throw this case out because there is no guarantee whatsoever that once uh, you know, God forbid, if Julian Assange is extradited, that. They don't use this tainted evidence, what they collected uh, while spying on him, while listening into his conversations with his legal counsel, all of his personal effects, which they stole, which included court documents uh, and, and uh, things pertaining to his uh, cases ongoing uh, w- with the U.S. and other confidential information that they could use against him. It doesn't even have to be uh, something that's necessarily illegal, because as we saw with the superseding indictment, they just they didn't change any of the charges uh, uh, that much. I mean, they didn't add anything new, it was the same 18 counts, but um, they added a bunch of this uh, spam, as I like to call it, with, but it, I think legally in the court, they yeah. refer to it as conduct. But and, and that's very grave, because even though they're not new counts, they can still use it to add harsher sentencing in the U.S. So it, it, it's it's really, really grave. And, and so just to summarize, I definitely think that this testimony from the two uh, UC Global employees, uh, hopefully that plays a part and, and uh, in furthering the defense's case, because it's it's such a blatant violation of a right to a fair trial.
0: Yeah, and I want to stay on the, the, the UC Global because uh, we talk about how this has to do with U.S. empire and the way in which it thinks it should not be accountable for its war crimes or torture. Balthazar Garzón, being part of Julian Assange's legal team, we learned from uh, these witnesses, was in fact a priority target to be attacked right. and surveilled and followed. And in fact, he was someone in Spain who considered what is known as the Bush six cases, which was whether to prosecute Bush administration officials for torture to bring international cases against those officials from within uh, the Spanish courts. Yeah. And uh, and and now he finds in being connected to Julian Assange that they have targeted him and his law firm that uh, he works for and I mean, I'm wondering what you have as far as your reaction to to the one IT expert who was part of the Spanish security company under David Morales working, and his statement is um, one paragraph after paragraph yeah. of how he thwarted what David Morales's and the U.S. intelligence crazy plans were to spy on Julian Assange because some of it was like, let's put a bug in every single room in the embassy.
1: <laughs> it's insane. Yeah, so this is witness number two, if I recall correctly. And um, yeah, this was crazy. So he he started explaining how at every step of the way, he was trying to dissuade Morales from – Undertaking this this ridiculous uh, spy program, and I'm laughing because it sounds like it's something out of a spy movie. But it's actually it's it's dude, this is not far from here. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Like this is in the heart of London. They're doing this. They just don't care. Like openly violating Ecuador's uh, uh, sovereignty. Because you, you must remember that as a host country, the UK has to guarantee the safety and the protection of every diplomatic mission, and that includes Ecuador. So and instead they they, they allow the embassy to turn into a playground and let the uh, U.S., I don't know if it's the CIA, but U.S. intelligence services run wild with UC Global at, um, in, their, uh, in their hand as well. So uh, speaking of Witness 2, I- indeed, uh, there was um, this idea that uh, Morales, uh, he was, it was communicated to Morales by the U.S. that they wanted streaming capabilities, for example, inside of the embassy. And uh, he even brought like a brochure or, or a presentation, a document in any case, outlining how this could be uh, technically feasible. Um, And showed it to witness number two, who's the uh, IT expert working at UC Global. And um, witness number two told Morales that it's technically unfeasible and it would not work in in order to dissuade him because he found the, the idea so ludicrous that uh, he just didn't want to do it. So his only way out was to tell Morales and try to convince him that, yeah, it's, it just doesn't work technically. Now, if I could say something just personally speaking- Well, and also,
0: it, Richard, he said that Julian Assange would figure it out because he's really smart. And yeah, right. you wouldn't want that to happen, would you? <laughs> yeah, that was brilliant. I thought this was like reverse psychology. <laughs> That's good. Yeah, but honestly,
1: uh, it's probably true, honestly, too. Like Julian Assange is that smart, but he already knew he was being spied on. I think the fact he had a white noise machine is, is indicative of that. Which worked. If- yeah, exactly. They had to put these stickers on the windows to counter that. Again, this is like some spy novel stuff, but it really happened. And, um, the fact that they went and spoke in the ladies room uh, as a, as a, as a means to thwart that, but it didn't work because I think they put a microphone at the electrical socket in there. And so they ended up collecting all this uh, legal, uh, violating his legal privilege and collecting all this, uh, all these conversations between him and his lawyers. So, uh, Just another thing I wanted to say, like, just personally speaking here, when I'm listening to this witness number two talking about um, how streaming cameras, streaming uh, capabilities would be technically unfeasible. I mean, this is kind of a moot point because you're already spying on it. Like, it doesn't matter if it's being streamed or not. So, I mean, like, morally speaking and legally speaking, it's still bad. It's still illegal. But so I don't really see why he found that streaming would be suddenly too far, like a bridge too far, as opposed to just regular <laughs> spying on Assange without streaming. You know what I'm saying? That is a good point. Yeah. Uh, so I, I I don't know. I don't know if that was a way for him to like kind of distance himself um, in the Spanish court case, uh, and and not to mention the one here in the UK at the extradition yes hearing, but just kind of distance himself and portray himself as being like a a good actor who was forced into these bad. Uh, circumstances and tried his best not to give in. I don't know what the, what that is, but yeah, that just came. I just thought of that in the court.
0: Well, there's there are a couple others that I think answers uh, Rania's question. You know, I, I'm wondering what you think of some of the people who had testimony about the treatment that Julian Assange would receive oh, in man. the U.S. Because um, and and to me, I think one that flies under the radar but could be really effective in the sense that it's a concrete example of the United States government misrepresenting what they would do with a defendant i think okay so apparently in the uk he's known as abu hamza but in yeah. the u.s he was um mustafa um i don't I forget his middle name but he's got the same first and last name in the united right. states and so i'm just going to call him abu hamza because that's yeah. actually how i always knew him i didn't know he had Me a different soon. name in the u.s but um the fact that they were able to show that the u.s had a warden at the colorado supermax who basically lied to the courts, and the courts accepted that Abu Hamza would not be held in a long term at the supermax. I feel like that's a big deal. Uh, so I'm wondering what you think of that. And then also, I recall that there was Maureen Baird, who's a former warden of yeah. the uh, of the MCC New York facility, where she saw where she handled pretrial Sam's detainees. Exactly. And I'm wondering what you think of the prosecutor and how it basically seemed to me that when she was attacking Maureen Baird's testimony as a, as a former warden, that she was basically like saying, you didn't become a whistleblower in the Bureau of Prisons, so nobody should believe your testimony at all.
1: Yeah, yeah, exactly. That, that was crazy. But uh, ju- just to answer your first question uh, with uh, Abu Hamza, so, uh, I mean, look, I-, I think we're all in agreement that guy should definitely be behind bars. <laughs> but uh, the-, the thing is, that doesn't mean we should um, okay the government's lying about what conditions they're going to place prisoners in. Just flat out lying about basic, uh, uh, you know, legal procedures and and um, enactments of the law. So when it comes to Assange, you know, they're trying to lie in court. They're 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 trying to move the goalposts all the time. So first of all, they'll tell you that okay, even if he is convicted and sent to a supermax, it won't be that bad. And then they say that well, okay, if if it is that bad, then he can appeal it. But but. And then the defense they will respond well that's not true because you know if you're held in pre in Sam's in pretrial you have to exhaust all these administrative remedies first and then they start going well that's not true because look there here's an example um, where you were able to I, I can't remember the the defendant's name I don't think it was Abu Hamza it was um, someone else but they were able to actually um, appeal the administrative remedies oh yeah
0: that uh, was sorry, the, the, that was appeal. the Al Haj uh, case El-Haj. and it actually yeah. came before September 11th so it's kind of like not yeah. meaningful.
1: There we go. Yeah. And and that was actually the response uh, from um, Maureen Baird. She said that it was uh, meaningless because, uh, uh, you know, oh, sorry, rather it was Lindsay Lewis who, who testified yeah. after her. Yeah. She said that it was meaningless because it was after 9-11. Uh, so after nine eleven, everything changed. And this case with El-Hajj was before 9-11. So you can't compare the two because – uh, all the legal procedures, the SAMs themselves became more restrictive after 9 11. So, this is, a, you can't make this comparison. And moreover, it's just one example. And he lost uh, his uh, privileges of having a bunk buddy shortly thereafter, and he was thrown right back into SAMs. So, I mean, this, this is ludicrous, the, the straws that the prosecution is grasping at to try and prove that conditions in US prisons are, are humane. They're not, they're really not. And, and the fact we were having a conversation where we're comparing the, the conditions under which terrorists are placed to what a journalist is going to face is ludicrous. It's obscene. I, I th- This is literally what's happening in the courtroom and, and it, it's just being you know, it, undertaken as if there's nothing wrong with it. And when it comes to um, Maureen Baird's testimony, um, I, I think she was really solid, but what the prosecution did was extremely dirty. So, you know, I'm, I'm sure, uh, it, Every single person covering this case knows by now, Kevin, you know this uh, extremely well, that the prosecution have the strategy where they try to discredit the expert witness yep. and and uh, do this in several ways. So they'll say, like, you know, are, are you biased in favor of Assange? Oh, look what you once said about this uh, case against Assange. And then they'll try to go up their uh, respective uh, field of expertise and try to denigrate um, their, their opinion in regards to that. And with Maureen Baird, they did this ridiculous routine where they're trying to accuse her of having not complained enough about, um, Sam's when she was, uh, in charge of MCC in New York. And they even said that she should have encouraged her staff to talk to prisoners. Like, why didn't you encourage the guards to speak more to the prisoners? And she told them, well, the guards would have said, that's not in my job description. You can't do that. And if she had gone, she couldn't have gone, uh, you know, over uh, anyone else's head and she couldn't have actually done much as a warden herself because SAMs are a directive and they're very black and white and it's, there's no gray, gray area. And one prison warden is not going to change that. Um, you know, these are really strict uh, guidelines, uh, very, very harsh uh, measures that are imposed just as a blanket uh, means to torture inmates, essentially. So she can't do anything about that. It's not like opening her mouth would have actually done any good. But nonetheless, they tried to use this as a means to discredit her. And it doesn't change the fact that these conditions are inhumane. And you cannot send a journalist on the other side of the planet to be put on these, under these conditions because they're inhumane. It doesn't change that.
0: Yeah, and um, I'll, I'll let Rodney get back in here in a moment. But it was kind of heavy because she goes, I had to tell myself this was okay. And, yeah. and it was like, whoa, like, uh, this is your system. This is what the Crown Prosecution Authority is basically selling to Judge Vanessa Barretzer in this case, selling that this is uh, going to uphold human rights that are supposedly sacrosanct in the UK. And, and of course, we've had so many examples. I'm um, including the doctor who was like, Julian Assange would be resilient if he was put in oh solitary God. confinement.
1: Oh, God, that, that was Fazelle, I believe. Um, <laughs> right, so... That, that was ludicrous because they're trying to use his uh whatever re- resilience he's had up until now, withstanding these inhumane conditions against him. And uh, again, that's, that's not that's no indication that he won't buckle under even more uh, pressure. And I think it's really disgusting that they're using his mental illness against him and and trying to downplay the severity of it. Like they also went on this this crusade essentially trying to ascertain that uh, trying to assert rather that. Depression is not serious mental illness. You have to have psychosis for it to be serious. Who said that? You, you have an epidemic of male suicide ongoing every single day. And that is nowhere near talked about enough. So, so how is that not a serious mental illness? People kill themselves because of depression. It's a very serious mental illness. And, it, and of course, it's self-reported, which is another point that the prosecution were, were going off about. And I, I really found this so ludicrous. You have a bunch of lawyers trying to, like, basically debunk. Science. I mean, it's not your place to talk about um, the, these kinds of things. You know, you're bringing people like Koppelman, who's you know one of the most uh, highly regarded neuropsychiatrists in the country, and you're you're trying to tell him what his job is. <laughs> that, that that point where Lewis, you know, was trying to accuse him of being a neuropsychiatrist as opposed to a forensic psychiatrist, and he said, well, you've recruited me, you've you've solicited my services <laughs> as a neuro, as a forensic psychiatrist in other cases, and now you don't want me anymore. You know, i found that ridiculous
0: uh so just just so people can follow who weren't following this trial um yeah, michael but, koppelman was the doctor who the defense brought in to do assessments of juliet assange and then we're talking about lewis james lewis who we find out has a mega brain um, according to his <laughs> law firm website
1: yeah yeah exactly me- mega brain mega brain lewis i, I that was I actually thought that was a meme that someone had sent me on twitter and I looked it up and it was real. Like if you type Lewis and you go on like, I think the first website, you'll see that it's kind of like an ad or something, Mega grain Lewis. just unbelievable. It really it's
2: <laughs> Based on what you guys have said, it sounds to me like the Assange side has some really good arguments in its favor. Um, yeah. But at the end of the day, it's not like a jury deciding this, it's a judge. So what are your thoughts on where this will go? Um, Cause is this judge convincible? Is that even a word? I think I just made a word up, but it works. You know what
1: it means? <laughs> we, we are, we are going and rolling with it. It's, it's, is she, she, is she movable? <laughs>
2: is she movable? Like, is it, I mean, cause it seems like, you know, given her history of decisions and yes. her own politics, right. It seems like no matter what happens and maybe that's a really uh, bleak view as Kevin would call it, but like, no matter what arguments are made, she's going to vote in favor of whatever the U S wants is how a lot of people see it. Do you yeah. guys agree with that?
1: Yeah, I, I agree with that. And uh, I think the fact that this case happened, this, the extradition hearing happened and took place, is proof of that because she should have thrown this out on day one. And she was being extremely uh, biased in favor of the prosecution. For example, the fact that she accepted this superseding indictment past the deadline. And then uh, you know, you have to consider Julian Assange was <laughs> rearrested in the jail cell and not even given enough time to read it. And when they asked for uh, they, they asked for her to throw out the conduct, which is all this this narrative uh, nonsense to lead to harsher sentencing in the U.S. When they asked her to do that, she refused. And why why did they ask her this? Because that's what the only that was the only difference between this new indictment and the last one, and a lot of the preparations they've made were based on this last indictment. So so th- it's a lot of significant change here, right? So basically, they just wanted some kind of return to the last indictment for which they prepared, and she refused. And then they asked her, okay, well, can we adjourn until January? so that Julian has time, we have time to build a more solid, robust defense. And she refused. And the, the prosecution were like, oh, well, they're just requesting that because you denied their motion to throw out the conduct. Yeah, obviously, because it's a new indictment. So they, of course, they're, they're gonna ask for adjournment. And you gotta consider it's something like they're doing this out of pleasure. Even if it's adjourned until January, Julian Assange is the one who's stuck in Belmarsh prison. He's the one who's stuck in solitary. He's the one who is put under these inhumane conditions. So they're not doing it out of pleasure to give Julian Assange a holiday, okay? But nonetheless, she denied that, which was, I mean, absurd that she accepted this indictment in the first place, the, the superseding one, and then refuses to even give them more time. And the fact that she tried to rush through all of these witnesses, right? I mean, we had explosive testimony. We had Noam Chomsky yesterday, uh, before yesterday. So, I mean, <laughs> like, we have so many witnesses to go through that are all going to come in defense of Assange. And she just wanted to get done with them as fast as possible. I mean, yesterday, the last day of the hearing, it wasn't even two hours. No way it was like two hours. It was like an hour and a half or something max. And she just finished through it, whisked past it. And like Kevin said, she was just summarizing or forcing the defense to summarize the witness statements. And that's why there was so much chaos yesterday. Like she readjourned the court three times. We we're just waiting outside the whole time trying to go back in. And then like at one point we're walking up the stairs and like, no, it's been adjourned again. Go back down. Wow. Like, because the, the defense were struggling to summarize everything and, and, and agree on on what they could submit into the record just to get it done in accordance with what Her, Her Majesty... Uh, judge Barretta wants. So I think she's very uh, unfair. I don't think that she has any interest in actually applying the law. I think that she is definitely going to rule in favor of the prosecution, and that's that's just. I don't know what to say, man. Like I'm, I'm really disgusted. But I think this was a, a, a true sham trial. Like this is not just um, uh, making a mockery out of any kind of like legal process. It's just disrespecting her own duties as a judge. She's disrespecting any kind of semblance of justice in the U.K. Like like this is not a U.K. court, you know, um, not that U.K. courts are something to be desired. But I'm just saying that there's no there's no sovereignty here whatsoever. It's the U.S. running this courtroom. Mm.
2: So, this is, she's going through the motions of pretending to give the defense an opportunity, but really she doesn't
0: care what they say. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Well, then the other thing is that throughout it, we've had featured on and on again throughout the entire trial. Uh, they just kept coming back to this Gordon Cromberg, the oh assistant U.S. attorney, who, by yeah. the way, like uh, people shouldn't people should know who Gordon Cromberg is uh, because he was involved in putting Samuel Arian, um through a, a heinous political prosecution, um, basically for his po- political beliefs in the fact that um, he's Palestinian and uh, targeting him in, in, in this manner and, and and he's got a history of Islamophobia and uh, and anyways so they've been relying on his statements and I can't we I mean you probably lost track at a certain time Richard up, up for the lies that were put forward by this guy to me one of the most <laughs> glaring was the idea which was blown apart by this public defender in Alexandria that you could talk through the steel doors or the windows of oh your God. solitary confinement cell <laughs> and have a conversation with people who are being held in solitary confinement.
1: Yeah, if you scream, yeah. then you can have a conversation. <laughs> Technically speaking, if you can scream and maintain screaming levels of speaking, yeah, then you can. But that was insane, like, as you mentioned, how, how he, he blatantly lied about uh, the <clears throat> the conditions under which uh, Julian Assange will be placed. And it, it's it's mind boggling how in the, in the indictment, he, he uh, I mean, it's, it's pretty clear cut that there's a very real possibility. It's very likely that Assange will be placed um, under Sam's, right? This is not something that they're even denying. And the prosecution, nonetheless, tried to deny what's in the indictment, which, I mean, it, it's crazy. It, it's, it's really crazy. And when, when it benefited them, then, of course, they would go and cite Kronberg and, and say that, oh, well, according to, <laughs> according to AUSA Kronberg, who, you know, is basically on the same team as us. Uh, everything is going to be fine. So you must trust us because we know best. And the judge is just going along with it. I mean, I don't see how you can re- reference uh, the guy filing the
0: indictment. <laughs> but but they can't cross-examine him. He's never called as a witness. You can't ask him, like, how he arrived at his opinion. You can't do what they've been able to do to demolish defense witnesses or to make them look stupid in front of the judge, if even that happened. I'm not saying it did. But, yeah, exactly. but, but you know, there's no way that they can cross-examine uh, this guy, and um, and by the way, you know, not to stray too far, um, afield from what people generally understand, but but I do think one thing that was fascinating to me is how they seem to be lying that he would be treated like a national security defendant if he's brought to the United States. I don't know if you noticed that, Richard, but in a lot of testimony, it seemed like they didn't want the judge to believe he'd be treated like a terrorist, even though you have Mike Pompeo saying. You know, it's, a, it's a hostile non-state intelligence agency. So wouldn't you treat them like they were uh, that kind of an enemy organization?
1: I mean that's, that's an excellent <laughs> point because the, the, the whole point of this, uh, this entire hearing is to put Julian Assange in the same conditions where terrorists are placed. So uh, you know, however they want to spin it in the courtroom makes no difference. He's going to be uh, sent to ADC in Virginia. And then if he's convicted, which he most surely will because the jury is going to be made up of people who, guess what, work in the intelligence community, so we know how they're going to vote. And he's going to be sent to ADX Florence and placed uh, – he's never going to see the sun again. I mean I posted that that short excerpt from a CNN clip where Robert, um, uh, Robert Hood, the former warden of uh, ADX Florence, he was saying that this is a fate much worse than death. So you never see the sun again once you go in. Uh, I mean we're talking about a journalist here. They don't care that's where he's being sent and that's where he will be sent and they, they they're trying to spin it that oh uh one, one second they'll say he's not a journalist what he did is criminal he's a cyber criminal he, he he sought to crack this password with chelsea manning and steal documents and endanger lives and then the next moment they're arguing that well even if he is a journalist there's no legal precedent that stops us from prosecuting journalists <laughs> we have to balance national security and freedom of speech. That's what they were arguing in court. Wow. Unbelievable. Unbelievable. Like, they're just shameless. So so it, it doesn't matter how, like, which way you go with it. They're always going to move the goalposts and try to lie their way out of it. And from one minute to the next, I'm not even kidding. And the most absurd thing, so I'm going a bit off track here, but this is so absurd. When when they talked about the baby, <laughs> the one-year-old. and Because, yeah. like, Abu Hamza wrote a letter to his son. Uh, saying, uh, tell my grandson that I love him. And they thought that it was code or something. Like they accused him of, of transmitting a secret message, tell my grandson I love him. And then Dobbin, the, the, the prosecution, uh, Lewis wasn't there that day. She, she answered, well, she retorted to the defense, um, uh, sorry, to the expert witness, well, we know that Abu Hamza's family members have been involved in very serious crimes. It's a baby. What are you talking about? It's a one-year-old baby. <laughs> now they're calling it a baby a terrorist? I mean, this is the levels of wow. absurdity that we're dealing with here. This is These are the mental gymnastics that the prosecution is demonstrating before a judge at the Old Bailey in the Central Criminal Court. But, Fort. you know,
2: it sounds really repetitive to me. <laughs>
1: <Right>. <laughs> You're hired. You got a job at the VC. Yeah, right
2: <laughs> it just sounds so repetitive and boring to me. Like, <laughs> imagine thinking that everything you said, and imagine that's your takeaway as well, it's really repetitive and boring.
1: Well, of course, he'd say that because he didn't go to the court. He didn't watch the hearings. He has no
0: idea that he needs to get out of jail free card, you know? He needs, to, he needs to not be held accountable for the fact that he doesn't do his job and everybody wants him to be there. I mean, The fact is there's a lot of people who figured out that this was happening and wanted more coverage and we're looking for it and we're hungry. But you go through even just a basic Google search on any given day, and it was a paltry amount of articles that were being. I mean, you have this kind of a trial happening that we've just described, and there might have been two or three articles worldwide published on any given day. Yeah. Yeah,
1: dude, I'm telling you myself. I I was at the court. There was no one there. (laughs) <laughs> the only people there were the activists. That's it. You know, we're, the public gallery is like in this tunnel underneath. And you have the, the activists that are queuing up to, to get us to places. God bless them. I can't shout them out, uh, shout them out enough because they, they, what they did come in there every single day, whether it was raining, whether it was cold or not, and, and queuing up, doing this for weeks. Huge respect to them. Seriously, without them, we, I, I wouldn't have been able to cover this. T- you know, Moritz wouldn't have been able to get in. So many people would not have been able to get in. Uh, Rebecca from... Uh, reporters Without Borders wouldn't have been able to get in because, uh, of course, NGOs are considered members of the public now, and trial observers are not a thing anymore in the UK. That's yeah. These are the kind of precedents already being set now in the in this country, so that's very important. And and I want to just like highlight the work that they've been doing because you know they they've been out there making the noise and, and banging on the instruments and everything, trying yeah. to disrupt the proceedings. I think uh, you probably know more about this, Kevin, because you, you were at Woolwich in February, yeah. so I think that was very effective. the the court proceedings you could actually hear it here you could not unfortunately but um uh yeah like just my point is that there was no media like i'm telling you there was no media you would have a few cameras at the end of the day uh most of them independent journalists you know you had um uh juan who was out there i saw him yesterday i met with him and you know maybe roughly coming in uh, rt and that's it no one else i never saw one saw any kind of mainstream uh media outlet or or a truck or anything no one that's it like like there were some moments uh, uh, where it, there's just nothing, there's no one like, you know, it, it's just empty. I, and, and they told me some of the activists that on some days for, the, for the public gallery where you have five spots, right. There were like two people coming in to watch it on some days hmm. there was, there was just no one there. And I, I and my, my impression was like, well, if, if this is the kind of coverage this case is getting, I mean, we're screwed <laughs> because. This is this is an abomination. I think most people, if they found out what's happening, they would be outraged. And that's why they make it so hard. They, they put all these obstacles in place uh, for the people who do seek to cover it. And of course, you know, when it comes to the BBC, when it comes to uh, CNN, whoever you want, uh, whoever you want to put in this indictment. No, no pun intended. These people, they're actually fine with the status quo and they're fine with this uh, extradition hearing happening because they don't report on war crimes to begin with. They don't do this kind of recording anyway. So even if Assange is convicted, it doesn't, they're not involved. They don't care, but I think they're going to be in for a very, um, a very unpleasant surprise because it starts now with Assange, they make an example out of him and they'll go after the rest of the independent media. And then soon enough, it's, it's going to become uh, just all out. Uh, I mean, persecution of journalists. So, so if they think that they're safe now and they're comfortable now they're, they're in for a, a really uh, rude awakening. Soon, sooner or later that's that's my my opinion
0: yeah and so a, a, as we wrap because we need to start um, concluding I'll, I'll just say the the Stella Morris who is Julian Assange's partner and I think Christian Harrosson the WikiLeaks editor-in-chief would say that the US was putting journalism on trial yeah and to counter that I would suggest that the WikiLeaks or, or sorry Assange's legal team was putting us on trial, putting US war crimes on trial, putting their conduct on trial, putting the way that they supported an espionage operation against a diplomatic embassy, a diplomatic facility on trial. And I I don't, if you have anything to add here, for people who think this is about Julian Assange, it is, it absolutely is. But I also think without getting into, you know, what anyone believes about Assange or doesn't believe, if that was the way you decided to tune in or tune out these proceedings, you missed an opportunity to really see a lot about uh, what the U.S. government has been doing in our name for the last 10 years, because that was put on trial as well.
1: Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. And I think uh, more, more than just the U.S. were were exposed because, for example, when yeah. uh, they were reading out uh, Stefania Morizzi's uh, statement uh, just before yesterday, she worked on. Italy's involvement with the U.S. and how they were more than willing to bow to U.S. pressure and uh, not go after CIA agents. And they they ended up uh, uh, getting away with it. And very, very much so uh, also when it comes to Khaled al-Masri. You know, in his case, um, he's a German citizen and he was kidnapped in Macedonia and then uh, handed over to the CIA. And Macedonia was held responsible. But Germany didn't actually do anything. They didn't apologize to him for their, their complicity. Um, and, and WikiLeaks was, was able to expose uh, how, how they ended up I- issuing warrants in the wrong jurisdiction, if I recall correctly, so that, you know, even if they were, they were on paper going after the U.S., it that wasn't actually going to translate into anything tangible. So, you know, all these Western European countries uh, were also exposed and put on trial, as, as, you, as you mentioned. And I think that's a very eloquent way of putting it. And it's important because even though it is about Assange, if you, if you looked at what was being said in the trial, it was about imperialism. Very clearly, and it it showcased the the full extent of these war crimes and not just um, not just what what Assange published, but also the uh, the lengths that, uh, you know, the suffering that Chelsea Manning went through, which we heard about uh, also in the last couple of days uh, in her her quest to to bring these war crimes to light, which is a really valiant and and, an honorable act. And and I think it's extremely important for this stuff to be brought into the public uh, arena because. Once people find out what's being done in their name, surely they must be outraged. I, I don't see how you can see uh, and hear about these war crimes, hear about these killings, about these mass graves, about these torture programs, and not be shocked. And Khalid al-Masri is one uh, torture victim from the CIA. He's one that we know about. And, uh, you know, there are many more that have their stories uh, in, in, this, in this arena. And that's why we had people like… Uh, Guantanamo Andy is his handle on Twitter. Yeah. Andy Worthington. Yeah, he was set to testify. And he's worked uh, on these Guantanamo files, and he was ready to give testimony. And uh, unfortunately, I don't think his video link or something. It didn't work out. He did a written statement, but these people—they're here to, to to showcase the crimes that the U.S. government has committed because it is a political trial, right? That's that's the whole point, and it needs to be ass- It needs to be asserted why they're going after Assange. It's because it's political. Because the nature of what Assange published the nature of WikiLeaks publications, they're embarrassing for the US and they are very much political. And that's why they're going after Assange. It's not because he's a cyber criminal. It's not because he did anything wrong. It's not because he, he committed uh, any breach of US law in the first place. He wasn't even in America. So it's, it's all about hiding and covering up the imperialism, definitely, and an exam, making an example out of people who pursue uh, national security journalism and uh, who seek to expose the, the truth when it's embarrassing to these governments.
0: Well, I think that's how Rania and I mostly understand it. I mean, the one thing I'll throw in there is that Dan Ellsberg had a really good point because as the State Department and Pentagon pretends to care about what could happen to these people if their names are exposed, he made the point that you've allowed 37 million people to be displaced from this region and countless civilian casualties And it's just like you shouldn't be allowed to claim that you care about these informants or these sources that would be endangered. You wouldn't do anything for them. It's just the cost of doing war.
1: Mm -hmm. Exactly,
0: yeah. And uh, by their own admission, by the DOD's own task force,
1: no one was harmed by WikiLeaks. So that's not our conjecture. We're not speculating. That's the U.S. government saying that. So, you know, we're supposed to care more about imaginary sources being harmed than the people that were literally killed and tortured. No, this is obscene.
0: All right. Well, anything else, Rania, for Richard? As we uh, I think
2: that was a really good way to end it. And I think at the end of the day, like this is an attack or this is an attempt to to punish the exposure of the crimes of imperialism. And perhaps that's why so many uh, people in the independent adversarial sphere aren't so interested, too, is because at the end of the day, they're not anti imperialists. Right. Um, and that's a big issue. And that's what WikiLeaks exposes. That's what you just described is exposing the links to which the US government has gone to carry out imperialism, uh, not just with war, not just with direct warfare, but also like with state, the State Department cables. We see this sort of diplomatic bullying yeah. uh, and meddling, right? Like in, exactly. in every country, like it, it was that was actually like a huge exposure into the way that the US has assets. Even now, you know, even now, the WikiLeaks cables Um for those state department cables you know i go back and use them when i'm covering what's happening in lebanon when i'm covering yeah. what's happening in syria they provide so much insight into the civil society groups that the u.s funds to foment unrest for the for the for the sake of regime change in these countries so it's not just the sort of war on terror black sites torture direct bombing you know, that WikiLeaks exposed. It's also these sort of almost like more insidious um, plots to fund these activists in different countries to literally overthrow governments and as well as media. Right. So like we learned a lot about that. And these are the kinds of things that a lot of the journalists that we've mentioned don't care about uh, because they, they don't care about the issue of like underhanded regime change, like of authoritarian, you know, of authoritarian <laughs> bad governments. Uh, so like it makes it more difficult for them to care, I think, because of that.
1: Yeah, one hundred percent. And and like you said, it's not just about the explicit war crimes uh, and and torture and renditions, it's also about the uh, insidious, uh, uh, more uh, under the table uh, deeds. <laughs> let's put it that way that they uh, engage in. And and I think it's really interesting how they bully. Their allies, right? I mean, they talk about allies. Mike Pompeo posts all the time about visiting our allies, the United Kingdom, our He's allies. going there to bully and, them. Yeah, it's, it's, that's all it is. They're on a leash. So, yeah. and, and that's really something that was showcased in the State Department Cables as well. And, um, and you know, it, the other
2: thing that was showcased so well in the State Department Cables was, like, the use, especially in the Middle East, that's the ones that I'm most familiar with, is trying to use different religious sects to, to, to hurt others. Yes. Like, trying to, like, you know, trying to use Sunnis against the Syrian, you know, Sunni extremists against the Syrian government, or Sunni extremists against, uh, you know, Al-Qaeda extremists, basically, against yes. Um, these kinds of things, right? But then, like, if you actually look at that for what it is, it exposes all of these narratives about wars in places like Syria, or even against the Venezuelan government, as bullshit. Mm-hmm. And unfortunately, those are issues that the progressive media in the United States are very bad at. They don't, they don't like to talk about that. They like to pretend that those were actual like pro-democracy movements. <laughs> and so that might yeah. be another reason like why, it's not the only reason, but that might like play into why uh, they don't understand like how impactful and important WikiLeaks uh, has been to, to understanding U.S. machinations around the
1: world. Yeah, cause I mean, they, they do pretend to care about uh, leaks and insider information. When it comes to RussiaGate, they're more yeah, than right. happy to swallow that up and republish that nonsense. Um, according to U.S. intelligence officials, insert bullshit here. Yeah. So they're more than happy to recycle that nonsense and and work with, uh, uh you know, keeping their sources secret and engaging in all the journalistic practices that are commonplace and on trial now, essentially in the Assange hearing that are there. The U.S. is seeking to criminalize. But when it comes to foreign policy, when it comes to actually exposing the true nature of the U.S. war machine, of the Western imperialist war machine, oh, now all of a sudden they're not interested. Nope. <laughs> <Okay>. Makes sense. <laughs> oh, we get it now. <laughs> we know.
0: <laughs> all right. Well, it, it was good to have you. And I guess I'm actually disappointed we haven't had you on as a guest before this episode because you're you're Thank, so good. Thank you. You're, Thank you're good you so to much. talk to. And. Uh, Um, Why don't you uh, plug whatever you would like um, and tell people where they can find your work. And I'll put up this lovely banner here so that they can support you.
1: Thank you so much. So, yeah, you you can uh, find me on YouTube.com slash Richard Medhurst on Twitter as well. You just type Richard Medhurst. You'll find me immediately. And uh, you can support uh, my work. Uh, You can support my uh, crappy London hotel (laughs) travels uh, uh, to cover the Assange on uh, Patreon.com. Uh, slash papi Chula, and There's a the link underneath and uh, yeah, the, you'll you'll find all my work on, on YouTube and Twitter. So um, Seriously, I can't thank you guys enough for for having me on uh, it, It's it's always a pleasure to talk to you, Rania. It's, it's been amazing with you, Kevin And I want to thank you so much for all your work and coverage of this uh, uh, This sham trial this Assange hearing. I mean, it's it's been exemplary and it's really the best of the best and uh, you know, we're I think as a whole um there's not many of us. What are we tomorrow on this panel, like eight journalists? Yeah, oh yeah, so yeah, uh, but-
0: Rodney doesn't know, but I I, I organized this independent media roundtable discussion tomorrow with eight journalists that were credentialed oh. to cover, um, and I'm gonna moderate it, and Richard's gonna be on the panel, and these are all people who have been working their asses off for the last month and deserve credit, <laughs> and uh, and maybe don't have the kind of platforms to get their work out. Like, uh, um, like the mainstream has and takes for granted and doesn't use it. And so I wanted to amplify our work and show media solidarity. I mean, a lot of us are fractured usually, and I think we should come together in, yeah. in unity. I mean, it's really important right now for media to stand together, not just as press freedom organizations that care about freedom of the press, but also as like professionals who do yeah. this on a daily basis because of what this case represents. So um, we're doing that. And just, Richard, thank you for having my back the one day um, it was like exactly a week ago, yeah. I think, or maybe two they weeks ago. Wow. No, it was two weeks ago that um, it was the day that Khaled El masri was supposed to testify, which had my, you know, the conspiracy part of my brain is, is going like, maybe they don't want this effective person to make it into court today. But, um, uh, but, I, but you know, it, I later was vindicated that I was, in, I was in the room trying to log in before the cutoff time and then they froze me out but you had my back so did many others and 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 thank you for that
1: of course of course i mean it's it's already hard enough to cover these goddamn things and now they are <laughs> making tech issues in 2020 in the uk no i don't buy that and i, I think that they need to be like at, at the very best it's incompetence and even that's not acceptable so they they need to show some respect and you know not uh give us more hurdles to deal with than, than necessary and you know thank thank you guys uh Uh, for, for having me on. It's really a pleasure. So, uh,
0: all right, uh, we'll sign off here and uh, thanks everyone for listening and watching this week, the unauthorized disclosure podcast. We'll be back next week with another show.